Hello and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture and issues relevant to the profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. In this episode, I speak with Rennie Tang and Sarah Wookie, the artists and creators of Punt Point, an amazing piece that bridges the disciplines of design and architecture. Rennie and Sarah met in Los Angeles and have collaborated on local projects prior to Punt Point at locations such as the Hammer Museum and Grand Park. Just to give a short introduction to Sarah and Rennie. Sarah Wookie is an American dance artist and researcher currently based in London and has been a guest artist at amazing places such as Tate Modern and Tanzfabrik in Berlin. She is the founder of Wookie Works. Rennie Tang comes from a background in architecture, urban design, and landscape, and is currently an associate professor at Cal Poly Pomona in the Landscape Architecture Department. Her interdisciplinary design practice, RenSpace, is based in Los Angeles and often collaborates with fields like dance, public art, and health sciences. For this interview, Rennie and I met in person and Sarah called in virtually from London. So let's dive right into the episode with Rennie explaining their project, Punt Point. So Sarah and I were invited to create this piece for the Van Ab Museum in Eindhoven in the Netherlands. And it, it grew out of a residency uh, at the museum. Uh, so we were in the museum for about a week. At the time, we didn't exactly know what would be produced. We just knew that the museum was interested in visitor engagement and incorporating movement into the this process of visitor engagement. So Sarah and I's collaborative work has always been uh, looking at architecture and dance and choreography and uh, how these disciplines can work together to create something. Uh, so what we ended up with is a piece that is what we we have been calling a self-guided tour, where uh, visitors can engage with some a toolkit that we created, and the toolkit prompts the visitors as they come in to um, to move in different ways. And in this toolkit comes with things like uh, a notebook, a cushion, instruction book. And they are free to kind of roam around the museum and engage with the artwork, engage with the architecture, engage with others uh, in ways that they normally wouldn't. So, Sarah, I don't, maybe you'd like to expand on that? Mm, yeah, thanks, Rennie. I think it's not the easiest project to succinctly say what it is. And I think partly due in, in, in fact, because it's a collaboration across disciplines, architecture or urban design and dance or movement. But just to kind of jump off of what Rennie was describing, and I might use slightly different language, I think sometimes we are grappling with terms that the museum uses or that we might use in our individual practice or that we come up together as a collaborative team. And for me, that week in the museum residency that Rennie spoke about was, of course, kind of key in developing this project. And because we were there, in a kind of live sense, and we're engaging quite directly, mainly with museum staff, both curators, guards in the museum, what they call hosts, um, which are volunteers who sit in the galleries and engage in conversation with museum visitors. And those kind of 
for me as a practitioner is very insightful. And I think also this observation and this idea that the people in the museum, the staff and the visitors and the museum itself were innately already performing. And I think that for me comes out of this training in postmodern dance practice of the kind of performance of the everyday. I think Rennie and I have, you know, referenced Desertot and those kind of interests in our own practice. And I think that was really kind of a driving factor in this is that we didn't want to insert something that was that was a kind of intervention, but it felt more as an extension of what was already there. So for example, looking at the gestures and postures and ways people stand in the museum or how they place their hands. And then kind of stretching those gestures slightly to suggest that one might also lean or lounge or lay down or sit. Um, And I think it might be helpful to talk about what Rennie referred to as this toolkit, which is very much, I think, coming out of that language of the museum. I I question if if it's toolkit or is it a prop, as one might say in the theater, but it's an actual, you know, material object, which I'll let Rennie talk more about, that suggest that um, the visitors and the staff can kind of extend or stretch these innate gestures towards the performative. I think another term we have used in describing this toolkit, it's a form of invitation or even permission. It's an allowance that uh, you may not normally feel comfortable um, moving in a museum, but because the piece invites people to do it, they're given that space. And then it can be contagious when you see one person moving uh, that immediately makes you feel a bit more comfortable to move yourself. So that was a big part of it, that it's not just about one person's individual experience, but it's, it's an individual experience with the understanding that there's others in the museum sharing that experience. Let me, let me just jump into that because there's so much richness in it when we talk about kind of invitation, I think the key for me and I, I think for Rennie as well, we both had these big badges on that said artist on it in capital letters in the museum <laughs> during our residency. And there's that like wonderful, odd phenomenon that artists, like creative project or artistic projects in public spaces are given this incredible allowance. Um, for example, when I did a project in Los Angeles about walking in the city and walking backwards, the policeman stopped and said, what are you guys doing? And we said, it's an artwork. And they said, oh, okay, that's fine. And they went on. And so in the museum, it was sort of, we could do headstands and play around and move about and no one questioned us. And we were given that kind of permission. So I think it's an extension again, or stretching that permission. I struggle with the word allowance because I'm doing a PhD research and looking at this as a case study. The word allowance as in terms of research has kind of come up with this red flag. But I think it is about that. I think it is about permission, but coming from this place of, well, we had these badges on and we could kind of do all these fun things. And what is it to extend that almost like a passport to another place? Here's a, an object that you can wear so that you too can experience what it's like to be that person in the museum that gets away with doing all kinds of fun things. So I, I have a question then. When you're in that museum, if you're not wearing the Punt Point yellow bag and cushion, are you still allowed to do all the moves? <laughs> That's a good question because it extends from what I'm saying about movement being contagious. Yeah, it's certainly certainly possible. And I think that's the beauty of it, that in a way we're trying to really loosen up the social space of the museum, which is quite coded, that there, there's a certain way you're supposed to behave and act in museums. If anything, our piece tries to loosen that up a bit or stretch it in a different direction. 
I also want to add too, I think it's fair to say that the Banaba Museum um, has an incredible history of doing really radical experimental programming and exhibitions. Um, they have a very progressive director, Charles Escha, and I think we were in a really unique situation there where their value system of wanting to, as Renee said, not only engage with their publics and engage movement and kind of the social in these different ways, you know, that we had a lot of freedom to explore in, in, in quite playful and provocative ways that our interests and our values within our practice were kind of aligned with those of museums. So I never felt, and I don't know, Renny, if you can speak to that, I never felt that we were discouraged to go for what felt like really experimental explorations. And to, to your question, Audrey, I, I would guess, and of course, the artwork sat in museum it was there on offer for three years, since 2014 to 2017, um, it sort of existed there for quite a long period of time during their permanent exhibition of their collection. And my guess is, having visited once um, as part of my research, I engaged with one of the guards who didn't know that I was one of the artists on the project. And I was there with a group of um, students I was working with, and um, he thought we were from another organization outside of the, this project. And so he said, oh, I've got to show you this great project point, and here's my favorite spot to, to lay down and look up at the view during my coffee breaks. <laughs> and I just thought, isn't that great that, you know, it's not just the visitors, but the staff are engaging with this. And so my guess is if someone were to lay down without this point pouch, I'm not sure that you'd have guards running after them in this particular museum, but it's hard to say. But my guess is they're, they're quite liberal in these ways. But I'm hoping Renny will jump in and describe this point pouch or bag that we're talking about. Yeah, I can give a, a visual of that. Basically, it's, you know, maybe um, 10 inch in diameter circular uh, felt bag, and it, it's sort of flat. And, um, and there's a strap around it so you can carry it around your, your shoulder. Inside it, it's all very custom, so customized to fit into the circular bag is a circular yellow cushion, so it's exactly, you know, a nice size for one person to sit on. Uh, the cushion is about uh, three quarters of an inch thick. It's vinyl, so it's washable. And then um, next to it is the same size circular notebook. There's two notebooks. There's one notebook that is more of an instruction book. So the instruction book explains to the visitor what this project is about and uh, gives playful suggestions. It's written in a language that is invitational. Uh, there's one key page that is a matrix of different movement types. So there's a little silhouette figure that starts just in very neutral movements, like sitting or standing straight. Uh, and then gradually this figure moves in more dramatic ways. And, and by the end of the, the last figure is um, completely 180 degrees doing a headstand. So that's our sort of palette of suggestions. Here's all the, you know, ver this is the variation of movement that is possible. And no one is obligated to do anything. I think even, even just someone imagining themselves doing it is, is already a step ahead. And the other notebook is a blank notebook where uh, we invite people to write comments and make sketches, sort of a freeform way for people to give us feedback on the piece. Uh, and it's been fun to, to look at those and see, you know, what people come up with. And there are a lot of fun little sketches and, and ideas, ideas on their favorite place 
to do the movement, um, different ways of using the cushion that we didn't imagine, um, using it with two people, you know, leaning against each other. So even without being there, we're able to access the piece and, and kind of get an understanding of, of what happened there. And I would say that that's another important part of the piece, us knowing that it's going to be there for five years, but we we just leave it. So it, it has to have a life of its own. And I think that is the beauty of the guard kind of taking ownership of it, that they're the ones that are there on a daily basis, watching it evolve. And I love the fact that they become part of it in a pretty big way. So I think, I hope that gives you a visual sense of what it looks like. Um, there were maybe 10 and they were all, you know, hanging on a, on a wall on hooks. So people were, were free to take one as they walked in. Yeah, it's such an interesting piece. And I love that an architect and a dancer brought their sensibilities about space and the human body and started working on a piece together. I was wondering before we talk more about that relationship, if maybe we can talk more about you as individuals so that we have a better sense of how it is you work together and the conversations you had. Sure. So my training is in architecture. So I have a bachelor's degree in architecture and I've worked as an architect for many years after that in offices uh, in Canada and in the US and in Europe. I, I have to say I never um, fully enjoyed working in those offices and, and it could have been the offices I was working in, but um, there was something missing to me. Uh, it just felt like architecture was not particularly compelling. So eventually that drove me to grad school. So I studied architecture and urban design at Columbia. And that really opened a lot of doors, being in New York and being exposed to kind of a very international cohort of classmates. Following my graduate studies, I stayed in New York. I ended up working in the studio of Mary Miss, uh, an artist who, uh, you know, has really been a pioneer of the public art movement in New York uh, and is still in her studio in, in Soho. So I worked with her for two years on a kind of landscape infrastructure project. And I, I think from there, I felt really open to go in any direction. I didn't feel ne it necessary to go back to architecture. Um, a direction that was pulling me at Columbia was landscape architecture. Down the road, I moved to Berkeley and uh, worked in the studio of Walter Hood. And that is what led me into teaching, um, which is what I currently do. I'm a associate professor at Cal Poly Pomona. In the undergraduate program, I lead the uh, first year design studio. And I think it's in teaching that I've, I've really found, you know, what I'm passionate about. It's a place that allows me the freedom to explore. And I continue to collaborate with artists, mostly artists, but uh, sometimes other disciplines. And the university has been a place where I could really continue doing that uh, because there are so many disciplines kind of at my fingertips. So I would say that my background in architecture, you know, is really important. I think it really grounds everything I do. I am always thinking about space, but I think the fact that I have always danced as well. I think the pairing of architecture and dance has been with me since, 
you know, the beginning of my education and continuing on now that I'm teaching, I find dance and movement to be an amazing um, teaching tool, you know, trying to explain spatial concepts to students, being able to have them tested out using their bodies, I think is just really needed in architecture school. So um, I've, I've enjoyed teaching sometimes very specific courses, like courses called the choreography of space, to simply integrating them into various exercises um, within my sort of core design studios. So I think naturally I, I gravitate towards people like Sarah. And I think what really shows that it is a great fit as a collaborative team is how long we've known each other. I think it's almost 10 years now. When we met in Los Angeles, beginning with very speculative projects, tons of proposals, um, I've invited Sarah to do workshops in some of my architecture classes, USC when I was teaching there, Woodbury at one point. It's kind of incredible if you look back in our history. Gradually, we began to get more invited work from museums, and we had worked with the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, and we did a performance piece in Grand Park. Uh, so that that eventually evolved into this work in Europe. Yeah, Sarah, I'll let you take it from there. Well, thanks, Renny. In general, my background is in what I would call postmodern contemporary dance, which is really influenced by the work of um, mainly New York-based choreographers, dancers in the, I guess, early 60s to early 1970s, primarily the work of Yvonne Rainer, um, who's a close mentor and friend that I've worked with for many years. But coming out of this postmodern training, which very much focused on kind of an expanded expanded idea of what dance can be, um, which includes everything from, you know, kind of pedestrian gesture to highly choreographed virtuosic work. So that was my training. And for about 10 years, I, I lived and worked in the Netherlands, making work for the theater. And it was when I moved to Los Angeles that I think it became really clear to me that my practice as what I now call a dance artist is very much rooted in the social, the spatial, and the temporal. I mean, these are the kind of tools, one could say, that is of the dance artist or choreographer. And because I had kind of left the theater, moved to Los Angeles, and was kind of confronted by this urban metropolis, um, which really kind of overwhelmed me as someone who spent 10 years on a bicycle in Amsterdam and no longer drove, my practice shifted quite drastically to be a response to the environment, to the spatial, to the social, to the temporal um, of Los Angeles and spent about nine years in Los Angeles engaged in a kind of walking practice as performance, as art. At the time, I was studying at UCLA with Edward Soja, um, who's passed, who is a postmodern urban geographer and urban theorist. And studying with him, I was taking some architecture classes and I just got really engaged in learning more about Los Angeles in terms of how it was planned, unplanned, um, built, um, the architecture. And my work kind of took to the streets, per se, and was very engaged in, in what was then kind of considered public art, but a performative act of public art. And doing a lot of projects on walking led me to this wonderful opportunity to work for Metro in Los Angeles. I was a consultant for creative services department at LA Metro for, I think, about three years, um, helping them develop tours of public artworks as part of the Metro system. Um, and that was just a really wonderful way as a dance artist to extend my practice beyond the theater, beyond even creating artworks and contributing to a kind of much greater cause, which was to attract discretionary riders onto public transportation through these 
kind of cultural program was just a great opportunity to invite dance artists and theater practitioners to lead these tours on on LA a light rail metro to see public art. And I was also working with visual artists by the name of Sarah Delighton, who I think Renny was the one to introduce us. And Sarah and I worked together for a few years on these pedestrian projects. And Zoom ahead really quick. Four years ago, I received a great opportunity to come to London on an artist visa to be here and develop my work. And it was at that point, again, I realized I respond to the environment which I'm living and working in. So coming back to Europe was an opportunity for me to go back inside. (laughs) And instead of going back inside to the theater, I took the choice to go back inside into museum spaces. And although that might seem like a big jump in terms of the space itself, for me, um, I don't differentiate so much between, let's say, a private slash public museum space and an urban sidewalk and a theater. These are all spaces of kind of social gathering or social interaction or shared space, bodily presence. And for me, it's just an opportunity to continue to evolve my practice and to think about how the body and movement hopefully can be a means to imagination, to play, to social interaction. (laughs) And I'll just wrap up by saying it's not surprising that I'd have this wonderful long-term collaborative relationship with someone like Rennie because I think my work has always been collaborative. I think dance is mainly a collaborative practice. I find it quite a, a logical match, actually, that architecture, urban design, and dance would meet. So I'm really grateful for... um, what we've made together, and here's some more. Yeah, I'll just add that in terms of talking about architecture and dance, I don't think it's obvious to most people that there is a connection because most people still think of dance as you know, a stage art, that it's um, something that is done by people who are skilled in movement and they, they perform as a spectacle. And I think our work is really, is obviously not that at all. It's um, as much about looking at the everyday, look at how people move in public spaces and trying to highlight that or encourage people to move more. So the the museum work coincides with a huge interest of museums currently desperately wanting the public to make sure that they're still relevant. And so you see all, all kinds of programming in museums that I don't think existed before that there's this desire to get the public to take interest in museums. Um, So we kind of entered at that moment. And so I think dance becomes something quite curious as a way to engage the public. Yeah, it's just been fascinating. More recently, I've had an opportunity here in the UK to make a, a dance work in the form of a dance film. This wonderful and quite surprising invitation by a museum. It's an old museum that was rebuilt and the architects are London based and the architects um, were very keen to this idea that the curator of the museum had invited dancers to come into the new building before all of the artwork and objects came in. So we were kind of given this empty new museum to, to play in and to make this film in. And it was just fascinating and just another reminder to me that when we did engage with the architect, how to say, I think there was just a wonderful invitation of collaboration that just got me thinking of well, what kind of further collaborations with architects who are, you know, creating these spaces that might find it quite fascinating that dancers are coming in and not just to respond to the building because I'm on the side of dance is an artwork and is a practice just as architecture is and um, that, you know, those kind of sit as, as equal. So I'm not being really articulate about that, but just to say, I think there is a lot of potential for collaboration across architecture and and dance. And 
I'll just add one more thing in terms of waving the flag for for dance as art. Um, I think going back to the Von Alba project, um, what's been fascinating for me is interviewing Christine Berndez, who's the curator and head of collections at Von Alba, and she was the one to give us the commission to create this work. And when I interviewed her, it became quite clear that over the course of the three years that the work was in the museum, um, there was a lot of conversation between the learning department and curation in the museum about what is this point work. And I think Renny and I too, right? We've been grappling on like, well, what exactly is this? Is it an artwork? Is it a performance? Is it a tool? And I think the education department was wanting to engage it in, in, you know, in their tours and as a learning opportunity, which is fantastic. And then curation was like, no, this is an artwork. <laughs> and this is supposed to come into the collection. So maybe that's a segue into talking about it coming into the collections of the Von Alba. And I just kind of find that absolutely fascinating, perhaps because I'm trained as an artist and I have a practical training in that. I, I love the idea of thinking about it as an artwork. And yet... I also see other opportunities for it um, beyond just the object to look at and to value at that at that level. I mean, I think that kind of ties into some of your activism um, in terms of artists and the proper pay for artists in terms of creating a piece that is at one time a commodity, but also transcends that. Yeah, absolutely. And what's fascinating about that is just how it kind of throws up this question of value of what we call it. So I think it's a wonderful, um, complicated project. And for me, coming at it from looking at dance in the museum, it's a really fun project because it it doesn't quite fit easily with any any of those. And yet I keep kind of arguing it for it as artwork and as something that is participatory. And it doesn't have to be on one side or the other. It can be both. Yeah, I, I think the what to call it and the vocabulary to use can be quite confusing and makes our work very hard to explain. But at the same time, it it's the questions that arise from that confusion that, you know, moves things forward in a way. Just thinking about relationship between architecture and dance, I think there it is uh, maybe the more conventional way of thinking where you think about dance as activating space, like, oh, we need some dancers to activate this space, <laughs> which... I think Sarah and I would would both question that it's not this sort of decorative thing that you um, plop into a museum for activation. I totally agree. This thing about dance is activating or anything is activating something else. The museum is already activated. The human infrastructure of a public site is active, it's performing. I think we'd miss an opportunity here also not to give a nod to William White and his work that has been so influential for Rennie and I, uh, the social life of small urban spaces. And it's really just kind of valuing of this kind of innate, as he would call, choreographies in public space of pedestrians in a way. It's just a beautiful, amazing choreography when you stand back and look at it as that. And it doesn't need activating. It's already activated. And I'll also just add, going back to the value question, the biggest value for me out of some point or any of the work I do is the sets of relations that emerge, you know, the collaborative relation with Rennie, the relationships that we had in the museum with the curator, the guards, the social interactions that come out of the project, hopefully with the visitors who are engaging with it. And then it just always keeps coming back more and more to me. It's kind of the value of what I might term relation or social interaction or even that human infrastructure. But that's where the excitement is for me. And that object, the built designed piece is just this wonderful catalyst to kind of help propel that forward. Yeah, 
with something being part of a collection also has a durational value of it, it extends it into something that, that's archived, the same as you would an object. Because often dance, it's an art form that is ephemeral. After the spectacle is over, it's over. And um, how do you give it weight and value beyond that? And I think this is a moment where that's beginning to happen, that even though, you know, maybe the dance itself is gone, there's a residue that's still there that's worth keeping and it has a life beyond itself. And what's great is because it's collected, hopefully it will be reinstalled in the future. And as part of the agreement in the acquisition is um, we wrote up what's called a manual of how it will be reinstalled. And um, what I love about that is that when it's reinstalled, it's expected that whoever the curator is of that show would be engaged in a conversation with one of the guards. So it's a curator guard, and then we've set a standard for hiring a dance artist to come in for a day, paid, to work alongside the curator and the guard, the three of them, in discussions to make decisions on where the points in the space will be laid within that exhibition, which is the points in space are kind of the places in the museum in which you can engage these gestures with the bag. And so I just began, it's about the relationships and bringing in these different disciplines of curation, the guard of staff and the dance artist as a practitioner that will engage and make those decisions. Yeah. So can you talk about uh, any future work or any other collaborations that you have in the works? Yeah, well, Point Point, it's actually a very architectural piece in the sense of if you think about points, lines, and planes as the building blocks of architecture. So when Sarah and I started talking about, okay, what would be next after points, that gets into the, the line. So how do we create lines or um, circulation lines through a museum? So currently, we're speaking to Vanaba about an extension of Point Point, um, but we're also talking to other museums and galleries about you know this new piece. That's great. Thank you so much for talking with me about this collaboration. I think it's a really exciting way to practice architecture that hadn't occurred to me before. Thank you. I, I don't know if it's a way to practice architecture, but it's certainly an outgrowth of what someone trained in architecture could, you know, a direction to go. But uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> thank you so much, both of you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the XXLA Architects podcast, featuring the women of Punt Point, Rennie Tang and Sarah Wookie. I'm sure after listening to Sarah and Rennie describe the piece, you will want to see images of the work. So I'll post links to their sites and the Van Abba Museum, and we'll also put a few photos up on social media. If you're not following me yet, you can find me on social media, especially Instagram at XXLA Podcast, or go online at xx-la.com and sign up for our email newsletter for announcements about new episodes and upcoming live events. Coming up, my next episode will feature another multi-talented architect working outside the box. And it's only fitting for LA that it's someone who's moved into film. Mina Chow produced, directed, and starred in her documentary, Face of a Nation, What Happened to the World's Fair. So stay tuned for that, and thanks for listening.